Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Whenever Next, um, our podcast, and this is episode two. This episode, we'll be talking about our origin stories, backgrounds, a little bit more of who we are and how we grew up with our different family dynamics. For us, this is kind of a funny episode because we already know so much about each other, but we are going to go back and kind of re-experience what it was like when we first met each other um, so you guys can get to know us as well. I think my intro sounded really good. Yeah? How did you like that? (laughs) (laughs) Where should we start? Wait, so we all met over, what, through Facebook? Mm -hmm. Maybe we should describe that. Yeah, so we all met um, through Facebook, um, an online Facebook group for Asian adoptees who are living, currently living in the UK. Um, I had just come over to Edinburgh to be with Rowan, and I didn't know any other Asian adoptees in Edinburgh. I just knew his friends that had already lived there. So I posted on the Facebook group, um, hey, is anybody out here? (laughs) And Hannah and Josephine were the first two people to comment um, on the post, and they were actually the first two people that I met in person as well. Um, I think I met Hannah, I think I met you first in the Hideaway Cafe. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, because when I replied to your Facebook post, I was like, oh, I I don't know anyone here in Scotland. And then Joe replied saying, like, I'm here as well. Um, but yeah, oh gosh, I'm going to have to look at our messages now. It's so long ago. (laughs) We ended up talking for like three hours at the cafe, didn't we? I know. So we had that and then we also, um, and then I met you, Joe, in a cafe or like in a bakery downtown. Yeah, I I remember what it was called. Was it, it's the one opposite the station, isn't it? And they gave us scones at the end because you were about to hop on the train. Was it Salt Cafe or Salt Rock or something? No, that wasn't. Uh, another time we've been to a lot of cafes <laughs> yeah we've been to a lot of cafes <laughs> and then when did you two meet in person for the first time i feel like we all met as a three cafe no? nero did we was it? oh potentially yeah it was i made shift or no yeah, and then your friend gave you your scrap for your birthday there. yeah <laughs> i think when i first met you guys i was more curious on yeah what your parents were like or how how you grew up um, or how much diversity you grew up around or if you knew any other adoptees growing up. Because I feel like there aren't as many in Scotland <laughs> compared to the U.S. But Yeah, because it was interesting for me at least hearing how you kind of grown up with them and also listening to your interview with Rowan and how he was saying that you kind of collect um, adoptees wherever you go in the world. 
like a little magnet. <laughs> I collect them. They're my souvenirs. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta catch them all. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I love meeting other adoptees uh, when I, wherever I go traveling. It's so cool. Yeah. Also, because I mean, you've got two sisters as well who are also adopted. Mm-hmm. So it's really been kind of part of your life, like through and through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my sister, Lena, she is the middle one. Um, and she was adopted from Vietnam when she was two months old. And then we have another younger sister, Nora, who is adopted from China, different province, when she was two and a half years old, when I was eight months. But yeah, we all grew up together with our moms um, in Kansas City. I don't like the way I said that. Sounds <laughs> <That was> weird. <laughs> Do it again. <laughs> no. <laughs> we can cut that part out. <laughs> but... How did your yeah. moms tell you that they were going to adopt again? Was it just like, a, whoa, we've got another kid? Or? <laughs> um, for Lena, I think I was really young when we adopted her because we we're only three years apart. Um, so I think I was only like four. Um, so I don't really remember her, but they probably just, they probably were just like, oh, like you're going to be a big sister and then showed me her baby pictures and then um, kind of told me like, how Mama Lisa was going to go travel over to Vietnam and then bring her back and she would be a part of the family. Um, for Nora, I do remember them being like, do you want another younger sister? And I remember being like, oh my God, this house is already chaotic, but <laughs> <laughs> sure, <laughs> why not? <laughs> and this was after, because I have a vague memory of them doing this again before Nora with a, a baby I don't remember what her name was, but she was going to be domestically adopted from Chicago and it fell through. But I just remember them showing me like her baby picture and being like, where this might be like your next younger sister. And then nothing happened. And then Nora came along. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember how you felt about that? Um, I think I just felt confused because I don't think they really, I don't think they sat me down or anything and said, what happened because I still don't really know what happened but I think that the birth mother had changed her mind last minute yeah and they were really heartbroken but because I think they had had uh the baby for a week already and then she changed her mind but yeah must I don't yeah I don't know much more about it but Nora she came when I was probably um because we're six years apart when I was almost 10 nine or ten and it was a different transition because she was a bit older when she was adopted. So she came over speaking a little, little bit of Mandarin. <laughs> and she doesn't remember any of the Mandarin now? No. She took up Chinese classes in high school and she got really good at it, but she just kind of stopped after a while. Yeah. Okay. She might go back to it. I don't know. <laughs> and do your moms both come from big families? I mean, uh, they both kind of um, want to have lots of kids. Like that's why they adopted three. Was it just kind of one of those things that it just snowballed? I probably yeah, because um, my mom Lisa, she grew up with five other siblings, and then my mom Bev, she grew up with six other siblings. So they both came from pretty big families. So I have lots of cousins on both sides of the families. So that's probably why. Yeah, I think that they just like liked growing up with other other kids and wanted us to have the same. I remember my mom always saying, like, to us, like, if you ever have kids, never have three because one's always going to be left out. I'm like, that's what yeah. you did. That's what you did to us. <laughs> they were like, yeah, that? but once we got three, we couldn't have four. It was too much. <laughs> <laughs> too many. <laughs> the middle child complex is real. 
Yeah. But I'm glad we had each other. It was fun. It was fun growing up, even even though we we fought a lot. (laughs) We always had each other to play with. And, like, I remember you talking in um, some of the previous interviews and also the one with uh, Mama Lisa about how they had to navigate and play the American adoptive system to allow them to adopt and that she had to go and adopt as, like, a single parent on paper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was crazy because, yeah, they couldn't legally adopt as a gay couple um, and they couldn't marry each other um, as a couple in the U.S. either. So Lisa had to um, file everything herself as a single parent and jump through a few hoops with the social workers saying that my mom, Bev, um, was just a roommate, (laughs) even though (laughs) they were obviously a couple. (laughs) And um, yeah, that's kind of how like we lived our life for the majority of my life with um, schools and everything and like being able to get financial aid from schools because on paper she was a single mom with three kids rather than uh, a couple with two incomes. But Let's play one of the clips that she kind of describes the how she worked with the social worker on adoptions. Let's see. And what were the legal loopholes that you had to jump through as a gay parent adopting from China? I think the biggest the biggest loophole was uh, the way the home study had to be written that we were roommates, that, you know, my Bev traveled a lot for work and we shared a house, not that we could, there couldn't be any reference to us being a couple or anything like that. So we had to have a home study person that was willing to basically lie for us. How did you know they were willing to lie for you? Well, because we had the reference for her from other gay couples who had used her. Oh. And so at that point, there wasn't a lot of pressure on her from the agencies. They were kind of willing to look the other way or not do much investigation into it. But when we were able to use her for your adoption and for Lena's adoption, but then when um, Nora's adoption came around, she told us that she wouldn't be able to do that anymore, that she was fearful, fearful for her license that she she wouldn't be able to do it. But luckily through Mal and Kim, we found um, Chris, who was like, I, don't, I have no problem with it. So you're roommates, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so we used her for the third adoption. What do you guys think when you listen to this as like outsiders? I think it's crazy, the hoops and the effort that they had to put in just to have a child as a gay couple looking to adopt and that it's just, to me, it's like crazy. And obviously, yes, there should be checks and balances in place to make sure that people just can't adopt on a whim, but that it was such an elaborate process and, you know, a drunk heterosexual couple can make a baby in 30 seconds of stupidity. (laughs) Yeah. Hannah, what do you think? Yeah, it's... It's really sad just to hear that how many extra hurdles they had to do and basically lie and not yeah lie on people and not have to they can't go the normal way if that makes sense yeah yeah it's it's weird because I never really thought about or you never really think about yeah legal processes that any kind of parent has to go through and like the time frame leading up to the adoption um, that they have to go through before they meet their kid yeah I I never really thought about what they had to go to grow through um, until I got older, really. But I guess another thing that kind of blew my mind um, when I was 
learning more about it or thinking more about it was that another hoop that they had to like kind of jump through, I guess, was that I learned that in the U.S., if you are a married couple and one of the spouses takes on like federal disability or has to go on to, I think, social security earlier than they intended, which happened to one of my moms, then the government stipends uh, like a monthly stipend for each kid that you have to support raising them until they're like 18. But because they were a gay couple, they weren't technically married. And so we never got the financial backing from the government because one of the parents went on disability and couldn't work. Yeah, and I didn't know that until like last year, last year or two years ago. So I know I'm like thinking about it and it's yeah, just so crazy. And that, so my mom, Lisa, had to work two jobs for like my whole life growing up. Jeez. I know, but not to not to make it into like a sad story or anything, but it's just, yeah, another uh, loophole or thing that being gay kind of stopped them from being able to live their life the way that they wanted to. When did you start talking about this with your mom? Um, it was when I was doing one of my online classes and we were, it was a political science class and I was learning about all of the different like benefits and systems for disability and like social security and so I was like reading all of the the policies and stuff and then I was like wait this one applies to this was my family but not actually because they weren't a heterosexual like married couple on paper and that's when it kind of clicked in my mind but and then I asked my mom about it and she was like yeah I try not to think about it (laughs) um has it changed since they adopted E3 or has it stayed the same um, I, yeah, I assume it's changed now that gay marriage is legal in the States. But good that they had that network of, because um, your cohort at school was actually um, quite full of other East Asian adoptees and they with gay parents as well, that they kind of like carved out this little kind of friendship group. Yeah, they, I don't know how they all found each other, but they all <laughs> um, seem to be friends with each, or many of the other gay couples who had adopted kids from um, China or Vietnam hadn't were connected in Kansas City. So I have a, yeah, I do have like a a handful of other adoptee friends who grew up with the same uh, family dynamics as I did. Yeah, I feel really lucky in that that, uh, aspect that I wasn't only surrounded by other adoptees, but also other adoptees who, whose family looked like mine. Yeah, of course. And you went to um, those adoptee camps as well. Um, So Hannah and I have been uh, camp counselors this year something that I feel was somewhat similar but I mean it was virtual uh, but you attended these ones in person every year mm-hmm. we started going to them when I was probably like seven I think and we did go to one a China, uh, one for Chinese adoptees and their families in Maine one year I think before we went to the found found catalyst and I guess my mom didn't really like it as much or it was more expensive so we ended up going to catalyst every year growing up and so growing up, we we were connected with other families who adopted babies from Vietnam, and we kind of stayed connected until we reunited again in the summer every year. <laughs> How was that? Is that something that you think helped? Yeah, definitely. I don't I, I don't think I realized how important it was until I got older. Because even though I attended like all the camps and my sisters did too, like we all kind of, there was like kind of a subtle 
not resentment, but like apprehension of talking, speaking about adoption when we're all together, because that's kind of the the purpose of like the conference and the camp. But I think we were more involved with just getting to know each other as people. And then now that we're older, we we still have each other to go back and be like, hey, do you, hey, this whole adoption thing, what do you think about it <laughs> now that we're adults? And I think everybody who attended the camp as kids yeah, are grateful to have just like that community to always go back to. I mean, Hannah and I went to a kind of English equivalent called Catch, which was down in Mayfield. Uh, but Hannah, how did you find that? Because um, that was like this weird phenomenon. It was once a year, this tiny little village just had this influx of like Chinese adoptees. <laughs> I know, it's, it's so bizarre. I can't believe we were there at the same time. But yeah, I think because my parents went through this adoption charity or agency or something and they were kept on this list and through that they got in contact with um, someone who was running the Chinese summer school and I think through there I'm not 100% sure but they just enrolled me on that and then I went I went to that for I think five years or something five or six years you've got to find a picture about this in it oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) how did your parents find it I think they enjoyed it, I'm, but I mean, I think they slightly felt the same way. I always felt kind of, I know, we, we, it was never really addressed, um, adoption, that is. It was just kind of, we were all there and we'd do stuff like we'd make dumplings or we'd like do a dance to Mulan, um, I'll Make a Man Out of You, which again, I think is quite a poor choice of song. <laughs> but I, I, I always kind of resented the idea that just because we were all adopted, we that meant we get on. And I think my parents did as well. They're like, we've all adopted children from China, yes, but that doesn't mean that we have anything else in common. And obviously children are a big part of your lives, and that is a talking point. But beyond that, I think they kind of struggled to find um, friendships within that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you kept in touch with anyone from your year or your the summer school? Yeah, 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 I have. Um, but I'm not, I'm not like, like that close with them. Like, I appreciate them as people, but um, they're not... I mean, some people, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're not my closest friends or anything. How many families were involved with that? It just grew and grew. I remember by the end, there were loads and loads of kids there. But at the start, it was um, maybe like 30 families. But did you think it helped to go into those camps, Hannah? Um, Yeah, I mean, because I was there from when I was five upwards, that I was just a kid and just thinking, okay, well, I'll try and make friends and play. And it was was nice making dumplings and getting to eat them. (laughs) But I don't know, it's, it's really bizarre because it was... How long was it? Uh, a week or two weeks or something? Something like that, yeah. yeah. Maybe a week. Was it three weeks? Two weeks? Anyway. And yeah, you were just sort of thrown in there and then once you made friends or kept in touch or and then you sort of all left and then it was like, okay, well, that was the end of it. But I never really... I thought it was like a fun activity but not really getting the meaning of it that much, if, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, looking at Catch and what we did there and kind of looking at what we've been doing with this online like, camp, I mean, what are the kind of main differences? And like, do you think that one approach is more beneficial than the other in terms of like, talking to kids about adoption? Is that something yeah. that you wish we'd had more of or less of? Or? Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, obviously as a camp counsellor, you can see sort of more of the benefits rather than, I don't know if you were in position of the child now or back then, but I really like how... Can I say can I say the name? Yeah, I think so. Okay, yeah. Um, I really like how unless we're gonna slag them off, we should. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, send the website. This is the one that I don't like. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
Yeah, I really like the exercises and they introduce adoption really gently and think about, okay, well, um, there was an activity we had to do um, and it was a an outline of a person and write words on the outside of how people sort of saw you or how people, yeah, and then the inside is how you saw yourself and look at the differences. And I think that is a great way of gradually incorporating your adoptive identity but and racial identity and um, other sorts of that. Mm-hmm. I don't know what did you think, Joe? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's slightly different. I don't know. I think Americans, they're kind of they've got the vocabulary in a slightly different way that we don't have. Mm-hmm. That's like, I know I got the sense of the kids like they would a lot more used to talking about themselves kind of reflect in a reflective way. Um, and maybe this could just be me as well, but I don't know if I would have been as receptive to something like that as a kid. But again, that could just be a personal thing. But I think it was beneficial for the kids and it was really lovely to see how they kind of like opened up, especially after like four days of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really lovely um, seeing them progress, or well, not progress, but just, yeah, like you said, open up and share about it with strangers, but not really strangers, friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's true though. Like, I feel like there's a fine line into pushing it onto kids. So like being like, you should talk about this and kind of just letting them connect with each other on an I don't know more with with their own autonomy of like I, okay I'll connect with this person or like I don't really like that person and because I think that's really true and I I remember the first time I met you Joe <laughs> one of the first time one of the first things you said was like just because we're adoptees we're like whoever we meet up with and it doesn't mean that we're going to connect with each other or become friends and and I don't know I, I just thought that was so like true as well because you can't really expect to be friends with somebody just because you're ado- you're both adopted and like I definitely hey I'm Ryan Reynolds recently I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Definitely have experienced that and like, and within the camp too, like, you know, I've not everybody gets along and you do have like the smaller circles of friend groups as well, just like in any kind of other social setting. But yeah, I think that is something to keep in mind that like, just because you meet another person who's adopted doesn't mean you're going to be best friends with them. I think it takes, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what how to say it, but <laughs> but um, with kids, so I don't really know how they plan like the activities at um, Catalyst and stuff. But there was one, the ones that um, they talk about racial identities and experiences with racism with the kids. I have been really surprised at how receptive they are, even though they act like they don't want to be a part of it. And, and that kind of really moves me because it shows me that kids really do need that connection or at least like shared experience and realize that they're not by themselves when they experience something like that. Like um, there was this one where they all had a piece of paper and they had to write down all of like the weird phrases or weird sayings or questions that people have asked them. And these are kids probably like, I don't know, like, I never know how old kids are <laughs> just by looking at them. <laughs> but probably like uh, nine to like 13, 13, 14. And so they had their piece of paper, had to write down all of the, yeah, just negative things or things that made them feel uncomfortable about their race or adoption. And kids would just, yeah, fill up the page and like even draw like little illustrations to go along with it. And then without having to share outright, the leader of the group would be like, who has one that relates to like their eyes or their adoption? And like, they would all raise their hand and then look around the room and see how many other people have experienced that. And yeah, I don't know. To me, yeah, to me that that kind of stuff I feel like is important. If Even if they don't all become friends with each other, they can all see that. Yeah, they're not on their own. Yeah. Sharing experiences and things. Yeah. I think it was sad. The one thing that really stuck with me was um, we had that um, exercise that Hannah was talking about and hearing like these really quite young kids talk about race and it was just, I don't know, that they were kind of so aware of that. that I, there was this one kid that I think she was in a foster family with like some other, um, there was like five or six of them, but she already could tell that she was having a different experience and experiencing the world in a different way and she was saying it as a, a black kid um, like these things had happened to her and it was that was really gutting I think she was only 11 or 12 as well yeah they're so young yeah do you remember um ever speaking about race and experiences with racism as a kid with your parents no I, I don't think so I think it really took 2020 for them to be like oh shit <laughs> Joe's not like us <laughs> <laughs> Although, no, I do remember, and, like, bless you, D. <laughs> this bit might have to get cut, but, um, like, we were coming back from... What are you doing, buddy? Oh, no, we're coming back from my sister's wedding, and um, we were going through passport control, and, like, um, you know, you have those, like, intelligent ones with, like, the little chip in it, and if you if you have that, you can go through fast alone, but I think you have to be 18 to do it, and I looked rough after a 12-hour flight, and the, so the guy stopped me, and he was a person of colour himself, but Judy... 
I, I think she also was slightly sleep deprived, hadn't had the best flight, and she thought it was like some racist attack. And so she goes over to him. She's like, "My daughter is a British citizen," and he was just like, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> This poor, poor guy who'd just been assigned to like, direct the flow was just getting this earful from, G- from Mama Jane. <laughs> it was her time to shine. It was. She was like, right, I'm going to solve racism. <laughs> <laughs> One flight attendant at a time. Pay for yeah. it <laughs> That's so funny. What about you, Hannah? Um, yeah, I mean, actually similar to Joe's, but with the airport. Um, I think this was in what, the first episode when it was quote, only until the so, well, so after my parents um, collected me from China and flew back and then at immigrations I think that was when they sort of realised that they had a an alien what do they say a Chinese baby and then we haven't talked about race until again similar to Joe's I think 2020 or something um, when they're like oh yeah and they I mean the they're like reading books of, about race and I think it was native or something and just I think being shocked after the BLM movement and everything and that really sort of opened up their minds and we can talk about it more openly which I really appreciate. Mm. Um, this was the first chat with my mum, proper chat with my mum about adoption and I think one of the first interviews that went on to the whatever next website so check that out. <laughs> under coffee chats um yeah this is just us why did you choose to adopt because michael and i wanted a family and we were unable or un- and unsuccessful and we tried ivf twice and we decided that we life without a child in our life would be very empty and um the adoption came about because we were in our 40s we were too old to adopt a young baby in the uk and once you were over 37 you were thought of as old and Mm. we wanted a child um as young as possible because we didn't want them to have been through numerous foster homes or have had lots mm. of bad experiences. Um, and about this time, um, there was a lot of publicity about um, the little girls in China, mm. and there was a television program, and there might have been, a, and there was a, various articles called "The Dying Rooms of China." Mm. And I was district nursing, and one of my colleagues gave me the article in Murray Clare magazine and I read it and it was a bit like what do they call it a light bulb moment mm, I yeah. thought this is it mm. we can adopt and offer a home to a little child and so we would have a little child and we could give a little child could have parents so that's mm. so that's how it came about so why don't you just explain quickly, because you grew up in South South England. Yeah. Dorset. <laughs> Dorset. What was so, it called? No. Was it? That little place that you never Tell mentioned. Tell us about Dorset, ever. Hannah. Yeah, Dorset is a lovely green area with lots of cows and sheep. 
Um, it's on the south coast. So you've got the south. Okay, this is important. <laughs> but yeah, um, so I I lived in Dorset when well between I was adopted until age five, and then my childhood was really in East Sussex, where I lived there from being five to thirteen, and then we moved back down to Dorset when I was fourteen. So just like back and forth. What was that like growing up in Dorset slash East Sussex? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think we've discussed this before about diversity and predominantly white areas. I think it's like probably an average of 90% white, if probably more. But yeah, I don't know. I had a really happy childhood and I'm really thankful that for that. And I didn't really, nothing really crossed my mind about really being adopted or being Chinese or anything. And yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what else you need to know. <laughs> so your mum was a nurse and your dad was a teacher? Yes, yeah. And you grew up as an only child? Oh yeah, um, I was an only child. I am an only child. <laughs> um, and so yeah, I just got used to making uh, making myself entertained somehow. Rubik's Cubes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that. Were you close with your parents growing up? Yeah, um, I was close with my parents. Yeah, I had a really fun childhood and uh, my parents were always there for me. Never got angry with you, apparently. What? <laughs> Never got angry with you, apparently. Oh, apparently they're going to be listening and they're like, what? <laughs> no, show the story this when they... Uh, Sally, if you're listening, it? please tell us. You were stumping up the stairs. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, she'll probably bring up some cringy old anecdotes or, I don't know, some... Were there any any times where you had kind of awkward encounters uh, with your parents out and about because of being adopted or because of being a different race from them? Um, probably, but I think that it just went over both of our heads, or all of our heads. Um, <laughs> As a family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, what is this? And it's like... <laughs> yeah, and I think I asked my parents, well, my mum this anyway, do you experience this? And I, I don't think any of us really clocked that, but it was only until I think when I went to Eastbourne for sixth form and stuff, when that were when I sort of got more sort of microaggressions and sort of racism, et cetera, until, and so it was sort of after that, and then coming to uni as well, that where I sort of acknowledged, or where I was more aware of that, and then I was like, oh, okay, and then looking back at sort of, there have probably been instances, yeah. But Joe, how was your childhood? How would you describe it? Um, very average. Um... No, not, not like average in a bad way. Like, um, I don't know. It was very unremarkable. It was very nice. We, I grew up in London. We were in Rotherhithe. And then we moved to North London when I was four or five. Um, first my school. Then I came up to Edinburgh for uni and here I still am. <laughs> How would you describe uh, North London? Oof. Um, <laughs> for people who don't really know um, the different districts, I guess. North London is... Well, the part of North London that we grew up in, we, I say we, me, myself and I, it is, it can be, it, it's just like, I feel like you need to cut all these clips together, me just thinking. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I have that image of you and Hester on the, on the windowsill with your pensive face. <laughs> North London, well, I grew up in Camden, but we kind of, we're in that, we're in a slightly weird thing where like we straddle a couple of um, different boundaries so we're kind of Hampstead, trying to kill them, kind of St John's Wood, but also Swiss Cottage, which makes no sense for anyone uh, who doesn't know it. But <laughs> it's quite, it can be quite insular. It can be quite bitchy. 
I mean, I also grew up in a fairly affluent kind of middle class environment, so it can be very superficial and judgmental and I said bitchy, didn't I? Um, <laughs> <laughs> when did you start becoming more aware, aware of like how the social environment was in North London? I think because I went to first a private girls' school and then a private co-ed school. And I think the acknowledgement and awareness of privilege was, it kind of came into effect when we were about kind of 13, 14-ish, but in a very kind of loose understanding of what it meant to be privileged in that it was something that people would joke about and they're like, oh, like, material goods were kind of, they're very disposable, but also sought after. And I think it took kind of coming to uni and meeting different people to realise that this isn't necessarily a healthy aspect uh, to take the world with. I don't know. I lived in a a pretty sheltered bubble, I think, up until uni, and still do to a certain extent as well. And both of your parents are journalists? Yes. Yeah, they met um, on the Sunday Times. Um, they're now retired ex-journalists, but yeah, they were both journalists back in the day. Were you close with them growing up, or how would you describe your relationship with your mom and dad? Yeah, we were um, very close. It was just kind of the three of us, and then uh, we got the dog and the dog made four. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how would you describe your experience of like meeting adoptees through Catch and then when you were like a teenager and then like how it is now in your 20s? I think I was fairly resistant to the idea of meeting adoptees and engaging with being Chinese and being adopted up until I was, up until now really. I mean, because I went to catch for a a good while. I did, I also, um, I was an assistant and like team leader for a couple of years. You were a team leader? Yeah, I was. (laughs) (laughs) And a Mandarin assistant, art assistant. (laughs) It kind of felt like going through the motions, I think. Um, and I did have friends then. I, 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 I do like them. But we're not outrageously close to anything. It's just, yeah, I suppose it's what it is. Have you shown them Leaf Boy yet? I have not. That's <laughs> on the to-do list. But I think I've met other adoptees more organically in the last few years. And I think that's been a nicer way to build a friendship because it doesn't feel as forced. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, we can bond over separate aspects of our lives. And then that kind of, yeah, the adoption thing is, it follows through and it's nice to be able to talk to them about kind of aspects of it, but it's not the kind of bedrock, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And what's it like for you, Hannah, meeting older adult adoptees now in your 20s as well? Oh, it's lovely. (laughs) Yeah, I managed to meet you two. I think you were both sort of the first adult adoptees that I've really talked to properly about adoption. And when when you, you were asking earlier about what it was like meeting you for the first time I think I was just super excited that we could just talk about it about adoption and not just that but I know yeah exploring that part um which I hadn't really before I had listened to a a few podcasts and other things um, not by a Chinese adoptee but by an adoptee and so it it was cool listening to that but I didn't have anyone to talk to so I think having this platform and having this podcast that it's been really rewarding in that sense that we can have these discussions Mm -hmm. what is the the clip from your parents that are your mom that you wanted to play and how or why she wanted to adopt yes what made you consider adoption in the first place well it was very simple we tried to have our 
own birth children, but uh, failed, mainly because I was 43 when Daddy and I got together. And I had a couple of miscarriages. Then we had some fertility treatment, and that didn't work. And we went to see this lovely man called Howard Jacobs, and he's a doctor, and he just said, you know, rather than go through all this, have, have you considered adoption? If you have a will to parent, adoption is just as good as having your own children. What was your first reaction when you heard that? I kind of agreed with it, because I'd been thinking about adoption for quite a while, and Daddy hadn't been so keen, you know, and he like the idea of reproducing his own genes. I wasn't that keen on reproducing my own genes because my, there were quite a lot of flaws in my own genes. And so I, I actually like the idea of adopting. What did you think of hearing your mom talk about the all of the fertility treatments and miscarriages that she had to go through before she came to adoption? It's something, you know, she hasn't spoken about that much. Um, I don't think it was a very, I know it wasn't a very nice experience for obvious reasons, but it's a lot to put your body through and put as a lot to put yourself through mentally as well. That kind of continual hope and expectation and disappointment. Part of the reason that, I mean, we were talking about this the other day that, you know, we wanted to start whatever next and have these conversations about adoption is that it's, um, it's not this kind of last resort in the same way that I think it was for my parents and um, that they'd exhausted those other options of IVF and surrogacy and then like, okay, now we'll adopt. I think people are, yeah, it's higher up on the list. It isn't this kind of like, oh, I guess thing. And I think it's important people think about some of you know, the, com- the things that come with it. Mm-hmm. For like prospective adoptive parents and all of the parents who come to adoption and whatever path or past experience they've had and like when we're starting to do more webinars with that include adoptive parents and everything what kind of thoughts and ideas come to mind when we are given the opportunity to speak to them what do you want them to know I think one of the things that really stood out for me for my mom's interview I think that's the clip that um got played in the episode before about relationships and dating but we're talking about um how she felt going back to China and finding a birth family and you know some of the reservations that she had and she was talking about that removal of ego you know that she um had this moment which was like I had to step back and take myself out not take myself out of the equation but realize that um this isn't about me and I think that's something that people can struggle to do and it's also something that people don't like to hear either if you're going to try and talk to an adoptive parent and I think I I will also be doing like some of the parent groups with the the online adoptee camp and a lot of them are kind of like, you know, why is my child talking to me about this? Why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they responding in a certain way? And it's that thing that people process things differently, A. And B, they don't owe you that kind of immediate explanation about, you know, how their day is and how they feel about adoption because there's a chance that they haven't got there yet. Mm-hmm. I know. What do you think, Hannah? That was a really good answer. <laughs> I'm just thinking. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's important for adoptive parents to... No, even though um, they're adopting, if they adopt an infant, that it's they're not necessarily adopting a blank slate of a human. They come, they come with their own background and experience that maybe nobody knows about, but it won't resurface until later in life. Um, and then when it does, it doesn't mean that it can be erased or disregarded as unimportant to that individual. And that, it, yeah, I think that a lot of adoptive parents should 
go into it as removing themselves or removing their own ego from like that equation or that their own adoptive or ado adoptee's history that they don't know about or that they're on a journey learning about. Um, if you have any further questions or queries, you can email us at whatevernext2020 at gmail.com. Hi there, thanks for listening. Whatever Next has chosen to help support Rape Crisis Scotland uh, because of all the work that they do to help end sexual violence. They work with 17 independent local rape crisis centres spread across Scotland, as well as running a national helpline year-round to support anyone affected by sexual violence. They also work with schools to help teach consent and safe sex and campaign to change legislation and attitudes that allow sexual violence and those who practice it to prevail. Which goes without saying that ending sexual violence is a matter that each of us take very seriously, and that's why we've decided to donate the profit raised from some of the stickers that we're selling to Rape Crisis Scotland. If you want to head over to our website, um, they're on sale, and also through our Instagram if you just want to DM us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Whatever Next. You can find more of our episodes on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. With thanks to Matt Ramsey for editing and mixing this episode, Whatever Next is produced by Solar Sounds. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.